Uh, If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 50. And as you're turning there, if you'll stand stand for the reading of God's Word. It'll be short and sweet. Genesis, chapter 50, verse 20. One verse, it says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about to many people, bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we come to you today, Lord, incapable of understanding your word and grasping your word outside of your help. Father, we rely completely and totally on you, Lord, for our next breath. Father, that we should even speak words of praise, Lord, we know the strength only comes from you. Father, right now, I just ask as we open your word, Father, that you would just reveal it to us in a way that we've never seen it before. Not that the truth hasn't always been there, But Lord, we see it clearer than we ever have. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, Lord, and I just ask for your help as we navigate through your word, Lord, that that we would uh, hear a message, Lord, directly to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. The subject that I am going to uh, attempt to preach over is one that is not easy It'll never be easy to be grasped, ever. But the idea of it might make things a little bit easier to understand. Maybe not understand everything, but easier to accept, an acceptable answer. I've entitled this, The Purposeful Sovereignty of God, and specifically over evil. We've all heard of the sovereignty of God. Most of you have. If you've been in this church for any period of time, you've heard Kevin mention it a bunch. Um, We talk about it a lot in Sunday school. It's one of those things that we're kind of, I can remember the first time, let me give you an example. The first time we came into this church was about 10 years ago. And Kevin stood up here and said sovereignty, and it blew my mind. I was like, what in the world is that? What is sovereignty? And so I want, to have, I want us to come to a, the conclusion that we can accept what the answer is and we can trust what the answer is. Sovereignty focuses on God's right and power to do all that He wills. Now that's a lot. God's sovereignty focuses on God's right and power to do all that He wills. God created everything. He created every one of us. He created the world that we live in. And He has the power to do whatever He wills with it. Now, providence describes the idea of purposeful action. How is sovereignty carried out? Providence you will not find in the Bible. But it's probably the best explanation that we can come up with in our Um, finite minds to describe what this is. 
It involves, uh, or it's God's involvement in the world and in our daily lives. How many of us wake up every morning and think in our mind, God woke me up, God stood me up, God gave me my first breath, God got me to work safely, God got me home safely, God gave me that job. Not really much, do we? When, things, when times get hard, it's easy to recognize God. But when things are going good, they're just normal. It's every day. How many of us wake up and go, the sun didn't crash into the earth today? Think about these things, the tiniest things. Now, before I want to get us to where we're at now, the way that our minds work, I want to go back and I want to look at a, a few older examples of what the, uh, the church history, I guess the, the early 1500s, what they described sovereignty or more specifically providence as. I don't know if many of y'all heard of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's a very, very good teaching tool. And question 27 in the Heidelberg Catechism says, what do you understand by the providence of God? And they give you an answer. It's a question, it's an answer. The answer is the almighty, everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. And virtually in every confession, you're going to see that divine providence signifies almighty, everywhere, present power of God. Everything. Not anything out of his power, anything outside of his control. The Belgic Confession, Article 13, the doctrine of God's providence. We believe that this good God, after creating all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will in such a way that nothing happens in this world without God's orderly arrangement. And then the Westminster Larger Catechism. This was a 1648 article. Question 18, what are the works of providence? Answer, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering them and all their actions to his glory. They had the same idea then, but we don't have the same idea now. What, what is the difference? You know, and I, I, looked, back, I looked back through... Uh, like what culture is actually thought of. Like we never thought about our crop not putting out and starving to death. You might not just make money, right? They understood that there was a strong sense of understanding that God had his hand in on everything. And you see a turn about the 19th century in writings, and I'm talking about people that didn't even confess to be Christians. They assumed that God was all-powerful. They assumed that he was involved in their daily lives. But the mentality today is something like, is there anyone that can help me? Um, most people question if there is uh, really a being out there at all. Uh, is there a being that is over the universe 
and that I'm a part of it? Or is there a being that can help me at all? Now, if anything, modern man might view this, and I have talked to Christians that believe the same way, that God created something, and it's almost like we're in a closed machine. And God wound it up, and He just turned it loose. And just whatever happens, happens. He started it, and He's going to come in and save us at the end because it's going to be a mess. Man, is that anything to hope for? Is that any kind of a, a good God at all? That's not, the, that's not the God we see in Scripture. They look at it as like a, a watch wound up. And whatever happens, it happens. But the, we, here we go every day, and, and, and we, we go through the same days, and the sun comes up. That's all God's going to be responsible for is the sun coming up, the sun going down, and that's it. But how do you explain all the other events in between? How do you explain seeing God work in people in between Seeing the God of the Bible call people for his purposes. This is not a wound up machine. This is not something that God spun like a top and we're just, until it momentum slows down, we're just going to fall over. Everything has purpose. What would be the benefits? This is what I, what I wrote down. What would be the benefits of knowing and understanding the doctrine of the providence of God? One, we will look at the state of the world that that we're in right now. And we will look at it with a different eye. We will look at it knowing that every event, every action, from the beginning of time to right now to the end of time has a purposeful action, has a purposeful uh, meaning to it. The part we can't understand is when it hurts, what is the purpose? When something is taken away, what is the purpose? That's the hardest part, right? I could see purpose in the sun coming up and I get to go outside and enjoy it. But what happens whenever the sun comes up and I have cancer and I can't get out of the bed? How do I accept it then? One of the, uh, one of the uh, old men of faith, Charles Spurgeon, he had a quote, and it's probably one of my favorite of all time. The detail... He, he was preaching on Ezekiel uh, chapter 1, and he was preaching on God's providence. And he said, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit, as well as the sun in the heavens. That the shaft from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars are in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. That is detail. And that's what Charles Spurgeon understood about the sovereignty of God, and he was right. Matter of fact, probably more detail than his mind could even grasp. The second thing that I, that, I, that, I, uh, that I came up with was, if you understand the sovereignty of God, you're going to know him on a deeper level. You're going to love him at a deep, at, on a deeper level. You're going to praise him at a deeper level. We 
we're going to look at the every action from the beginning of time in Isaiah 46. So we're going to bring that up on the screen. And it says, this is God talking. He says, remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Everything that happens is just in the course of action of God accomplishing his purpose. But we have a hard time realizing that even in our what we feel like is our little minute detailed lives that the same thing is happening every day to us this is the little atoms in the in the grand scheme of things right matthew ten twenty nine. it says are not two sparrows sold for a penny the 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 um, example that jesus gives here two sparrows were was about the cheapest animal that you had and it says they were sold for a penny, which was just like today's time back then. It's the smallest amount possible. So the most insignificant animals at, sold at the smallest amount possible, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. He goes on to say, but even the hairs of your head are numbered. How much more important are you than two birds? to God that are sold for a penny. There's comfort in that, right? Knowing that he knows when those two birds, God decides fall from the sky, you're dead, last breath. The same way he does ours, but how much more does he think of us than he does two birds? Now, the providence of God, what I want you to understand is, and you've probably seen this in the world, I taught on this several, several weeks ago from a John MacArthur study that he had done. The biggest problem that the world has with God is the same problem that I had before God opened my eyes. How can I look at the world around me and believe that God is in control and that God is good and that God loves? If God is in control and God is all-powerful and can stop it all right now, why don't he do it? Why don't he do it? Now, this is the huge stumbling block. They can't just believe it. They can't do it. If a guy can do anything he pleases, then why doesn't he put an end to it all, all of it right now? But by the way, that's the worst thing that God could possibly do to an unbeliever is end it all right now. Number one, there is no more chances. And number one, or number two, this is the best they will ever have it. Do we believe that? Do we believe this is the best they will ever have it? That's a question I ask myself. And if I believe it, why am I telling everybody? Why am I warning everybody if I actually believe it? If I actually believe that God is ordaining my steps, how many times am I disobedient? How many times did I have a chance to tell somebody that I know is not godly, that I know is not a Christian? How many times have I failed? But yet he still wakes me up. Yet he still gives me another chance. Do you believe it? The other thing that I think that we don't really believe 
Is the wrath of God and is hell real? Because if we really believed it, same way, same way. There is a, it's almost as, it's strangely dim. And in the back of our minds, we're thinking maybe God won't punish them as bad as he said he will. Maybe he'll give them a little bit of mercy, even if they go to hell. Maybe he'll give them a little bit of mercy. But I'm going to tell you something, God does not lie. He does not lie, and his word says that hell is as bad as it says it is. That should scare us to death for the people that we know. I want to go to, I want to go to uh, Habakkuk. So th- Nathan doesn't have these, have these verses. So I'm, I'm going to have y'all have as much fun as I did as finding Habakkuk. And while you're making your way there, I can give you some help. It's uh, close to Nahum. Do you know where that's at? <laughs> it's right after Micah. It's towards the end of your, your Old Testament. And I want to use, use this as a, as a uh, I guess, a perplexed version or a perplexed um, idea of what Habakkuk was going through here and how we do the same exact things. Habakkuk chapter 1, and we'll just we'll jump around just a few places. We're not going to go too far, and you can hold your place in Genesis. And by the way, when we get back there, if you haven't held your place, it's the very first book of the Bible, so you're good. Just to give you a little bit of background, Habakkuk was a prophet. So he was set in place by God as God's mouthpiece. And at this time in Israel's history, the Chaldeans have been given permission, basically, because we're thinking of the, the sovereignty and the providence of God, to attack the Israelites. They have taken over. They have pushed their way around. They are the most powerful They are very successful. They are evil people that look like they have got everything possible. And and Habakkuk is very, very upset here. He said, O Lord, this is is, uh, verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Skip there, go to verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. You have ordained them as a judgment. And you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. Habakkuk understood that God had allowed the Chaldeans to punish them. Why? For judgment and reproof. This is something you will see throughout the whole entire Old Testament. You see, God saves, they obey, they disobey, He judges. Every, it's, it's, a, it's a pattern that never stops through the whole entire Old Testament. And as the leader goes, so goes the people. We did a, a, a small children's study. We did it for years with our kids. And that was the one thing we kept picking up on. And my kids would always pick it out. They'd say, oh, here we go again. So-and-so's failed. And now all the people 
or turn their way away from God. They're following pagan idols. And then God would punish them. He would put them in slavery. He would, somehow or the other, they would get punished. And they would come back and start crying out, Oh, God, save us. And he would save them. And there would be years of obedience. And then here comes another king along. And, and my kids, were every single time, well, here, here he goes. He's about to mess up. Here he goes. It's the, it's the same. It's the same. And it's the same in our own hearts. We're saved we obey, we disobey, God corrects. We don't like the correction though, do we? Here is Habakkuk crying out, How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why are you using evil people to punish us? Is what he's saying. He is so perplexed here. He is so confused. That's the kind of way we are. I mean, look at America right now. Do we look godly? Does our leadership look godly? I agree with a lot of people. We're being punished right now. We're being punished. This is judgment, I think, from God. All these years. And we took it for granted. We faked it until we thought we were going to make it, and that's not the way Christianity works. It's, it was so easy to be a Christian in America. It was a cool thing in the 90s. I remember the, the Jesus freaks and all those things. It was just so cool. It was so cool to be a Christian. But then when it got real, when it wasn't cool anymore, that's where we're at right now. To culture, it's not cool. It's not cool. What's cool is do whatever I want and not obey anybody. So this is the dilemma because we want to see evil punished but yet we really don't. We want to see evil punished but we really don't want to tolerate it as a nation. But we tolerate evil every single day in ourselves. That's the battle. We're not holy people. Positionally, we are holy. But do you feel holy? But yet we want to see evil repaid to those. But if, it was, if you really wanted to see evil repaid, then we're all in a mess. We're all in a big mess. But I want you to see something. This is encouragement here from Habakkuk. Because he didn't understand what God was doing. And when you, don't, when you don't understand what God is doing, what you do is you go back to what you do know about God. And he says in verse 12, Are you not from everlasting? Is that true about God? Of course it is. He has been. He always will be. O oh Lord my God, my Holy One. He understood God to be holy. He cannot do wrong. Even though this doesn't look right, that he would use somebody evil to crush them, and to shape and mold them, he understood that everything God did was right. He says, O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. He understood that no matter what, God was right, God was holy, and God was a rock. You want to know how you can look around at the world today and say, I don't know what in the world is going on, why God doesn't put an end to this. You know, you know how you can have comfort? You go to what you know about God. God is still good. 
God is still good even when he takes. God is still good. Even when there's evil surrounding us, God is still good. God is still holy, and everything that he allows is for his purposes, and it's right. Do you believe that? I want to leave from here, and I want to go back to Genesis, because I want to give you an example here. Probably one of my favorite stories of the entire Bible, and it really did happen, by the way. It's not just a story. Genesis chapter 37. Those of us have know the story of Joseph. Joseph was a son to Jacob. And we're just going to comb through some of these verses real quick. And I just want to kind of give you a background if you don't know or just need to be reminded of, of where, where this all lands. Where did it start and where does it land? Uh, verse 2, second part, says, Joseph being 17 years old. So here we have a 17-year-old boy. Now Israel, verse 3, now Israel, which is Jacob, you remember? God named him Israel, but it's Jacob, his father, loved Joseph more than any, of, uh, any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. Evidently, there's a time period there where you'll pick a kid just because of your age and you love them more than you love the other kids, right? I guess he was old enough to be, have the grandpa love. I think I love all my kids the same. I hope I show them I love them the same, but maybe there is a difference here. Maybe, maybe he has a little more patience here to love, right? But at any rate, we have favoritism here, right? Verse 4, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his other brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So now we have a favoritism, we have jealousy, we have hatred, right? Verse 5, now, when Joseph, now Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, here's the dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. You will see as you read through this story, they're so mad, they're going to get rid of him. They're so mad, they're going to get rid of him. They take him, and at first they want to kill him. They want to kill him. But then they thought, chapter 37, verse 20, Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then they will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, so they got a story to back him up, and we will see... What will become of his dreams? We'll shut him up. We'll kill him. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. Skip down to verse 23. So jo when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him in a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. They see a caravan coming, and they decide to sell their brother. 
because it's better to get some money off of it than just kill him. That was their mindset. So now you have favoritism, you have jealousy, you have hatred, you have greed. God is ordaining all of this, by the way. Every bit of it. Chapter 39. You think things would get easier for Joseph, but now he has been placed with some trust up at the top. And Potiphar's wife tries to uh, have an affair with him, and he won't do it. And she takes his, the second attempt, she takes his, his uh, robe and saves it and basically says he tried to attack her. And he's thrown into prison. And God allowed that to happen. God allowed that to happen. While in prison, mind you, he's there for a very, very long time. He interprets the dream of Pharaoh. This was a dream about famine, that there was a severe famine coming. Basically, everybody's going to starve to death. And Pharaoh sets him up in charge, basically, of everything. And he devises a plan to store back, to prepare for this famine. God allowed the famine, so God could allow Joseph to interpret the dream, to prepare for it. This famine wasn't an accident. God sent it. God sent it because they knew they were going to starve in a famine. But God saves them through Joseph. Does it sound anything like the New Testament picture of salvation? A little bit close, right? So, favoritism, jealousy, hatred, and greed set salvation in motion. God allowed every bit of it for salvation of people. But he sent every bit of it. This all builds up to this severe famine. And for 13 years, Joseph, uh, first a slave and then a prisoner, thanks to Potiphar's wife, um, he set over all the land, his preparation, sends Joseph's family to Egypt because they need food. Most of us know the story. They don't recognize him, but he knows who they are. And he sets them up. It's almost a scare, right? You, you, uh, you, you stole, and he sends them back home, and he keeps the younger brother. And they feel the pain, but they didn't feel any pain whenever they got rid of the, the first little brother. They feel the pain. And they do as he says. And when he comes back, when they come back to him, this is amazing. Verse, or chapter 45. Joseph provides for his brothers and family is what my title says here in, in verse 5. He says, and now do not be distressed or angry. They know now it's him. He's revealed himself and you know the guilt is poured on him right now. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. What does the next line say? For God 
sent me before you to preserve life. You see nothing but evil leading up to this point, right? Nothing but evil. None of it was good. Even when you thought he was on top, here comes Potiphar's wife and he's thrown into prison. And even when he's set before him over a country, evil ordained, allowed evil. Now, I don't want you to get this twisted and think that God is the author of evil or God is sin. There is no sin in a holy being. He's not the author of evil, but he takes it in his creation and uses it for his purposes. You can see back in Isaiah where he would take countries and it literally said they were like hammers and mallets in the hand of God and he would use their evil acts to punish his people and then he would punish the ones that were doing the evil act. The Chaldeans are punished in Habakkuk eventually. And what I want us to take from this is we can look around today and we can say there's evil everywhere. Even though we would love to see some evil punished, right? We really don't want evil punished. But to know that one day, it'll be no more. It will be no more. That's our hope. Our hope is it's this bad right now and it's going to get worse. It's going to continually get worse because you know how? We know that. It says it. Man's heart continually gets evil. You think it's bad now? Look back 20 years ago and tell me, do you see a difference? Huge difference. I talked to a lady two weeks ago, 70 years old. I don't know how in the world we got on the subject of God, but God gave me the opportunity and I said something about God's creation. She said, you might as well just hush that right now. She said, I'm 70 years old. I've been an atheist my whole life. And you're not going to convince me any, any way otherwise. I have zero faith in anything, is what she told me. And I said, that's not so, because you're going to drive out here on the road, and you got faith that the car in front of you is not going to jet across the median and smash into you. you got faith that when you get underneath the knife, that you're going to come out the other side okay. you got faith that you're going to pick up a hamburger that you don't know how they made it or what's in it, that you're going to eat it and not die. So you have faith. And she said, there cannot be a God. The same thing that these people think today all around. There cannot be a God. She said, God was man-made just for order. Does it look like we have order around here? That's not true either. And I said, you don't want to know why I believe this? Because I can't prove it wrong. Everything that's wrong with me, everything that's wrong with the world, it tells me about all of it. And I can't point to any of it and say that does not make any sense because every bit of it does. Every bit of it. But God also tells me that it's not always going to be like this. What kind of hope do we have knowing that this is as good as it gets? And that's how some people live. That's how I lived before God opened my eyes. This is as good as it gets. Look around. Is, this, is there any hope in this? And we wonder how people can think about ending their lives. If you're apart from Christ, how is it so easy they can end their lives? Because I'm going to tell you why. Because they put every bit of their hope in the things they can see. And I'm going to tell you something. Everybody will let you down eventually. 
money will go away eventually. And when it's all stripped away and there's nothing left, there's no hope. That's how we should look at ourselves right now. Strip everything away about yourself. Do you still have your hope in God? Take every bit of it away. Because I'm going to tell you, you can lose it all that quick. You can lose the person you love that quick. Is your hope in God? Or is your hope in things and people? doesn't mean it's not going to hurt. But at the end of it all, do you have your hope in God? Is it set there? Are you okay with evil being in the world because you're evil too? Are you okay with it till God says it's, it's time, it's done? And are you sharing that with people? Because I'm going to tell you, hell is realer than we will ever know. And I hope none of us in this room will ever see it, but there's a possibility that some will. And I want you to hear me saying today that if you don't know who Jesus is, He came to this earth, sent from God, ordained to die for your sins. You have sinned against God. You have sinned against God because you hate God. You hate His Word. But if you can hear, if you can feel the Holy Spirit touching you today and opening these things are starting to make sense to you, don't wait. Don't wait. You step foot outside, you don't know what's going to happen. God is ordaining every step. Everything that comes to pass is ordained. You don't know what's going to happen. Don't let it be too late. Don't let it be too late if you've been living wrong. If you, have, if you are a Christian and you completely just pushed it all to the side and things of the world matter more than anything, come back to God. Because I'm going to tell you, He's going to show you that none of those things will last. One way or the other. And I would hate to know that I went all through this life pretending to stand before Him and say, I never knew you. What a waste. What a waste. Don't waste your life. Don't waste the bad things that happen in your life. Because here's the thing that I know. John Piper wrote a book years ago that said, Don't Waste Your Life. And then he even went back and wrote one and said, Don't Waste Your Cancer. He had cancer. They didn't think he was going to make it. And what did he do during that time? He praised God more than he ever did. And, and people seen that. Don't waste it. Don't waste your heartaches. You let people see you having hope in God. Those are the things that matter. All this other mess is going away. I hope you have heard, I hope you have heard the Word of God more than you've heard just my head rattling but I hope you will take it in consideration. How can, how can we live in this evil world and be okay with it? Because we know who God is. Go back to the things you know about God. God cannot do wrong. God cannot sin. And everything that's taking place, He's allowing for a purpose.